You guys are listening to the feedback link, and I'm so excited for today's episode. We have Hazel Keetle today, and she's in Australia, and it's 1 a.m. She stayed up all night just to be with us today on this podcast. So grateful for her. Um, so we're going to be time sensitive so we can make sure to get her tucked into bed at a somewhat reasonable hour. But guess what? Today we have a co-host, a co-host. I'm so excited to start bringing on some co-hosts here and there. And today we have Sarah and she is one of our VBAC doulas. And I'm so excited to have her with us today. Um, Sarah is going to actually do you the honors of reading you a review. So go ahead, Sarah. Hi. Yeah. Glad to be here. So we have a review from Caitlin Bayless and this one is from Google and it says, I honestly can't recommend the VBAC link enough. I had my son via C-section in 2021. And even though I'm not pregnant with number two yet, I feel so ready and even excited for when that time comes because of all the stories and education from the VBAC link. I have been binging the podcast for the past couple of weeks and have a note in my phone that is specifically for VBAC resources and education that has been mentioned on the podcast. I am looking into providers and plan on starting interviewing some soon. I can't thank you all enough for all that you do. And I hope one day I can share my VBAC story. Oh, I love that. I love that. Well, here today's episode is going to have some more resources for you for sure. You are tuned into the VBAC Link podcast with Megan Heaton, who is a longtime doula and VBAC mom herself, here to help you get inspired for birth after having had a C section. Along with this podcast, the VBAC Link offers blogs, resources, and a comprehensive VBAC course for both parents preparing for birth and doulas wanting to take their VBAC education to the next level. Be sure to follow Megan and her team on all social media platforms for even more. Although these podcast episodes are VBAC specific, it is encouraged for all expectant moms to listen and educate themselves on how to avoid a C-section from the get-go. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Here is your host, Megan. Happy Wednesday, everybody. We are coming to you from the VBAC link and we have a guest from Australia. And we're so excited to have her. We're so, so excited. Um, we actually just connected here. Oh, maybe. Well, we're connecting for the first time, I should say today. But Hazel, our guest today, just connected with us about a week or two ago. And you guys, she, she's so amazing. It's 1 a.m. where she is at in Australia recording right now. So I just want to give her a huge shout out and thank you <laughs> for being with us at 1 a.m. Oh my goodness. I told her I probably would have been like, mm, nope, let's find another time. But here she is. She is so dedicated at 1 a.m. recording with us. And I cannot wait to share with you this wonderful, wonderful human being. We are going to jump actually right into it because again, it's 1 a.m. there and I really don't want to take too much time but I wanted to quickly introduce her. This is Hazel Keetle, and she is a lecturer of midwifery and completed her PhD in 2021 at Western Sydney University, University in Australia. Hazel has more than 25 years of experience as a clinician in nursing and midwifery, educator and researcher. 
her researcher, her research is, I might as well be one o'clock <laughs> here, Hazel. <laughs> her, research, <laughs> her research is recognized internationally and focuses on midwifery practice education and women's experience in maternity care. Hazel is passionate about improving support for women during pregnancy, birth, and early transition in mothering to mothering. She is amazing. And right here in my very hands, I am holding a book that she wrote. It's called Birth After Cesarean, Your Journey to a Better Birth by Hazel Keel. And I definitely am going to suggest this. And we're going to talk more about her book um, here in just a minute. But I, again, I don't want to take too much of her time. So we're going to jump right into it, Ms. Hazel, and turn the time over to you to share all of your wonderful knowledge and, of course, your story. Sure. Okay. So, well, thank you for having me here. Um, and I really don't mind uh, waiting up for you. Um, okay. So, yeah, my name is Hazel Keedle and I'm originally from the UK, but I moved to Australia 20 years ago now with a backpack um, and never left. And I came over here as a nurse and then I trained to be a midwife while I was here. I was kind of destined. My granny told my granny was a midwife in England and she told me that I would be one. So I kind of followed what she said and I became a midwife here. And then I like I wasn't particularly interested in vaginal birth after cesarean at that point. I was just busy trying to get my head around what being a midwife was and what it meant. But I um I quickly met my husband during my my um new grad year as a midwife and we quite quickly got together and, and had a baby which was a um planned home birth but ended up being uh he was being breech and I ended up having a, an emergency cesarean because in my area at the time this is 15 years ago there wasn't anyone who supported breech vaginal birth mm-hmm. so I knew that I would have to have a cesarean I didn't have a great experience and I didn't do too well with my mental health afterwards. But then, um, which was not planned at all, uh, I got pregnant again very quickly. And so there was only four months between uh, my cesarean and and getting pregnant. So when I did find out, which wasn't for another few months after that, because I was breastfeeding, I had to think about what I was going to do. And I really didn't want to have a cesarean. My, my whole first experience was the most hospitalized home birth <laughs> you could have thought of I had pneumonia at 34 weeks with mm. my first and then I had you know the cesarean and then I had ed- endometritis so childbed fever after that so I was in hospital three mm. times my and I was really sick and I I really didn't want to go through that again but I also wasn't sure if I would get supported to have a feedback because there would only be 13 months between them um, or 14 months I thought at that point so I did lots of reading. You know, I was a midwife by this point and I dug my head into the numbers. I read the only book that was out there, which was The Silent Knife, which, as you know, is very old <laughs> and it was very old then. But it was it was really good at giving me the statistics. I then updated my my reading for a whole weekend. I like kind of shut myself in a room and just read and read and read and read. And I came out a bit freaked out because I, a paper had come out that year that said if it was less than six months between uh, a cesarean and and conception, then you had a 2.7% chance of you trying to rupture compared to less than 1%. And I got a bit freaked out by those numbers. And I came out to my hubby, who's a very rational numbers man. Mm-hmm. And I said, I can't do it. I can't do it. Like, I can't have a V-back. And I told him the numbers. And he said, but you've got an over 97% chance of everything being fine. 
I was like, well, well, yeah, because it's more dangerous to get in the car and drive to the hospital. Like, why don't you just go for a VBAC? So I, um, I adopted his idea and I thought that was a great idea and I became dedicated to have a VBAC at that point. And I didn't realise at the time it would shape my future <laughs> career and life goals, but I, I kind of stuck my head in the sand. I avoided antenatal care, to be honest, because I didn't want to hear the negativity. But I was a midwife, so I was able to get someone to, you know, listen to my baby and do my blood pressure every time I went to work. And then I, I did plan a home birth um, for my VBAC, but all of my team couldn't be there at the time. So I transferred in and, and I had to fight during my labor. I could go into it in the book, but there was lots of, lots of coercion, lots of, you know, you must have your baby by four o'clock mm. or we're going to a cesarean. And, and I had to just keep fighting. It was so hard just to keep fighting when you're in labor. And they also knew I was a midwife because I trained there. So, I couldn't really understand why I had to fight so hard. And then I uh, I actually pushed her out of my vagina at four o'clock on the dot. Oh, the my time. gosh. No way. Yeah. <laughs> the time they said they were going to take me to theaters was her birth time. And it was amazing. Like, I, I, I didn't know I could feel that high after doing something that was so hard. Mm-hmm. But I did. And it left me with a couple of questions when I looked back and reflected on how I felt like first of all I I wondered if there was any other women that felt as amazing as I did like I really was on cloud nine I felt like I was healed that that all the mental health stuff I'd had after my first was gone but with that came a question of well how does any other woman in Australia manage to have a VBAC with that much drama like with that much negativity during labor and pressure yeah and I was a midwife and I could see through it but how mm-hmm. did other women who didn't have that knowledge? And so I, I was left with those questions. I was at a community forum. We had a lot of access issues up here to our local maternity units. So there was lots of um, like uh, petitions and, and uh, community action. And I went along to one of the forums and I shared my story, my VBAC story in that forum. And there was a professor of midwifery there who said, I'd never met before who said you know you're a midwife I think you should research this and I stayed in contact and then about a year later I started doing research with her and she was my supervisor for both my master's honors and then my PhD and now we work together on on other projects so yeah it was that kind of sharing my story in that location that started my my research career well I think having a VBAC started my research career but uh, it, yeah that's kind of started my that started my formal research career and now I'm here she's about to turn 14 and I have done a master's a PhD five or so papers on VBAC maybe more and uh, written a book so that's kind of my story in a nutshell um and done amazing things and written a book <laughs> You know, and it's so funny because you're like, yeah, it started, but I think it's been in you for a while, right? And then that just kind of inspired and gave you the extra umph and been like, okay, now I've gone through this. Now I've experienced this. How can I change this? How can I change this for everyone else? You know, and like when I, I always had this desire for birth and passion for babies. Um, I would have wanted to be a labor and delivery nurse. That's like what I wanted to do. And then I had my first C-section and was like, oh, that wasn't really what I wanted or what I envisioned. Yeah. And then after my second, 
learning more about doulas and birth and really the options. And then also going through that second cesarean, although it was healing and everything, just like having a different experience. I was like, yeah, this is what I'm doing. This is, (laughs) this is what I want to do. And so it's like, it was always in you and it's always in me, but like this experience that we have had, these experiences that we've had, had just lit the fire. Like I literally, it became the drive. Like I, I'd always been interested in research. I'd done an honors degree when I was a nurse back in London. And so I had a, a bit of a passion for research and for reading the research. But I, I think you have to have that real drive and reason for, you know, for, for going on such a big path. And uh, yeah, definitely for me, it was, it was not only the, you know, how, how amazing I felt, it was just that question of well did other women feel that and and, and is it is it hard for everyone <laughs> but there was one point when I, I stayed overnight I kind of wish I hadn't I wish I'd gone straight home but I got coerced to stay overnight in the hospital and um like midwives would be coming in and saying are you the VBAC woman and I thought what is this it's like a zoo and I'm like this prize <laughs> animal that they're going to come and just stare at like it made me think well actually is that quite rare then to have a VBAC here is this really so rare that they've got to come in and go are you the feedback woman yes yeah but I hadn't really learned much about it in my training I was working in a low-risk unit so we didn't even have offer feedback in the hospital I was working in so it was quite a rarity for me as well yeah so tell me more about tell me more about feedback in Australia tell me more about what what it's looking like, what it's seeming like, and what you've learned through all your your education. I, I would love to know. I mean, we talked about, you know, in the beginning, like I'm just here in Utah and we are, we are actually very fortunate. We have a high, we have a high VBAC rate here. We have a, we still, I mean, cesarean rates are through the roof in general, but um, in my own opinion, but um, we still have a higher VBAC rate. And so it isn't, but we still have to fight for it, right? It isn't as uncommon, but like, I'd love to know more about, yeah, just more about your research and, and what you're seeing there in Australia. And sure. So what is your VBAC rate out of interest in Utah? You know, I'm trying to remember the exact. I will look it up. Because I think in the U.S. Now. in general, it's about 12%, isn't it? Last time I checked. Yeah, that does sound the right. Numbers. Yes. Um, and see. interestingly, uh, when I, I, I do a lot of presentations, on VBAC and you know when you look across the world they really do vary from Finland with you know over 50% down to you know over across to you guys of 12% and we match you so we actually don't have the higher European numbers we have 12% as well it says 23.9 okay so that's pretty good 27 to 20 yeah so it says in 2020 23.1 well, 21 three, 21 point, oh my gosh, 23.1% were cesarean, but vaginal births after cesarean from 2017 to 2020, Utah averaged uh, 23.9 overall. Like, yeah. and then it breaks it down within the cities here. Which is, which is really good. I mean, I know that's not consistent across the US because then no. the national number comes yeah. right down. Right. Um, we do have varieties over here and those varieties are, down to model of care um, mm-hmm. and access. So here in Australia, we have a public uh, maternity system or public hospital system that is paid through um, the taxpayer. And in that system, um, where everyone gets free healthcare, 
they can they will be able to access a few different models depending on what's available in their area. So they might have a midwifery group practice where they can see the same midwife throughout and there'll be a uh-huh. few of them that are on call uh, for free as part of the hospital service. But that's relatively new and that's really only been rising um, in the last few years as the health services are increasing those models. Mm-hmm. Um, we had the standard antenatal care, which is where women see whichever midwife's on duty or whichever doctor's on duty. And then, you know, whoever is on in labor ward will, will look after them during labor. And then, you know, whoever's on the ward to look after them postnatally. We call that standard care, but we also call it fragmented care because you see somebody different all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, then we have, so outside of the hospital system, and we have some smaller ones for First Nations women and, and for migrant women, there's some specific, specific models as well. Um, but then outside of the public hospital system, we do have privately practicing midwives, which are, um, they are able to prescribe medications, um, get some money back from Medicare and offer home birth services. And some of them also have visiting rights in the hospitals that is more state specific we have more mm. in queensland than in any other state here in australia for, for the visiting rights so but they're able you... to come over and like if transfer were need to happen and things like that they could come over and perform yeah they could have a, they could have like a, an agreement with the local hospital but that is that's a growing thing and and it's more popular in some states than the others where i am which is new south wales which is where sydney is it's there's only really one hospital that offers mm. that in such a very big state um, yeah in Sydney and then we also have private hospitals as well where you would you would be through a private obstetrician and so you'd get that continuity but it's obstetric care not midwifery care um mm. you may or may not see a midwife during your antenatal period and then it'd be whatever midwives are on in the labor ward on in the private hospital um but with a with the private obstetrician that you've signed up for. So we've got a few different models of care. And what we do know from the studies that have been done, the VBAC rates do vary across those models of care. So they're higher um, with privately practicing midwives. So a lot of women who choose home birth are choosing it after a cesarean. And that's what I did my first study on, uh, which was their experiences. And then we have um, good rates in midwifery models of care, such as the, the midwifery group practices. And then we have lower rates in, in private hospitals. So they, they, they have a higher repeat cesarean rate and a lower VBAC rate in private hospitals with, with, with continuity of obstetric care. Mm. So that's really how it looks. But obviously, we're a very big country um, with a lot of areas in between. So we'll have uh, hospitals that maybe don't offer birthing services for a lot of our remote communities a bit like Canada uh, where although I must say in areas of Canada they have set up birthing on on country services we we're still a bit behind on that mm-hmm. um so it it really is uh, a variety of of services but most metropolitan hospitals you'd get you know a private model a public model and uh, midwifery models within that yeah oh my gosh I love it I wish so badly that I had the capabilities to like I guess I was in a time in my life where I didn't have littles, like little kids, right? Like um, where I could bounce around to like not only um, different states, but different countries and somehow observe birth and like learn birth around the world. Like that is like this dream of mine that I could understand birth from all areas other than just, you know, little Utah here. (laughs) Um, Like, because I think 
I mean, I have a doula partner who just came from Texas and like birth is so different here in Utah than it is in Texas. And like you're describing, you know, what you're describing is so different. And in obviously like similarities all around, we hear all these stories and there's definite similarities to birth. I mean, it's birth, but like the way care is and everything. So I, yeah, one day, one day, maybe I will be able to bounce around in life, but I love hearing that. Um, That's right, because we're only then, we're limited to then really what is published. And so some of the countries that have higher VBAC rates, so just across from us is New Zealand, where they have a midwifery model of care. Mm -hmm. And from the numbers that we can get from them, they don't have national data on this. Um, Mm -hmm. they They seem to have much higher VBAC rates to us, but then they don't publish very much on it. So it's really hard, you know, like mm-hmm. unless you're there, it's really hard to get a sense of what's going on. What's really going on and what they're doing and why they have such a high rate. Yeah. Other yeah, than there, maybe there, There's some care. studies out there, especially the one in New- in Europe. There's some studies that kind of looked into the culture and how different that is, um, mm-hmm. but not enough, not enough to really give us an idea. Absolutely. So Miss Hazel, I would love for you to share more about your book too. Like, you have so many amazing things in this book. Um, I mean, I'm going to hurry and just kind of flip over to like the table of contents, but it reminds me a lot about like our reback course. It covers just these so many incredible things, these topics. And um, obviously your VBAC journey is in there, your research journey, which I think is amazing, your PhD journey, um, and then birth trauma and experiences and symptoms of birth trauma, which is so important. We don't talk about that enough. Um, seeking help, debriefing, again, something we don't talk about enough, how to access debriefing. Like, I don't know if you want to cover any of that, but like th- this, that's so important right there. I mean, you have so many themes in this book. Um, maybe do you want to cover some of your highlights? Um, so, you know, Sarah and I, we're both here in the States, but we'd love to know more about this amazing book, which by the way, listeners, we're going to have a link for this book if you want to purchase it and give it a read because it's going to be amazing for you. I promise you. Oh, thank you. Well, look, my publishers are in the US. So when I was writing it, I very, I very much had the US in mind, yes. Australia and, and UK. So that was, you know, even when I looked at any resources in the book, I tried to find US ones as well. Yeah, I noticed like you had yeah. some Lamas and everything in here. Like you had, like you have tables of where it's broken down and it does have US things. So that's, that's something I think that is so amazing because a lot of our listeners are in the U.S. And so it's super nice to be able to, to read something and have some resources for here where they are. Yeah. So the, um, the idea behind the book was I was towards the end of my Ph.D. journey and I use a methodology called feminist critical theory. Uh, and part of that is that you kind of give back your research. You know, you you. You get your research or you get your data from women in the community, but then you kind of want to give back to to transform that culture for the better. So when I was really evaluating, well, how do I do that? When I was writing up my thesis, I'm like, well, how am I giving back to the community? And I had research papers and I know people read research papers. You guys do. And then you translate that evidence into your doula course. So I know people do do that. But I thought maybe that's not everyone. And when I did my Australian VBAC survey, I asked what kind of resources people used. And there was a real want to have more books out there. Mm-hmm. So I wondered if I could have this crazy pipe dream of, of writing a book. And, and then I had the opportunity to do that. So I submitted my 
my thesis in the October and by the December I'd, I'd signed a book contract. So I was really keen while it was all fresh in my head just to kind of, you know, get it all out down on paper. And I think lockdowns were kind of in my favour because I had to take leave because it was building up and I couldn't go anywhere. So it's like, well, I'll just sit and write this book then. And that's really how I used my time to do it. But I, I put it together as I as really my findings of my PhD. And one of the papers, one of the first papers I, I, I wrote on my PhD journey was looking at all the evidence that was out there. And the title of the paper was The Journey from Pain to Power. And mm. that really thread, that was a thread that kind of went through all of my PhD journey. So when I was then looking at, well, how do I write this book? The, the term journey was very high up there. And I thought, well, I'll go on that journey from pain to power. And so the first thing is that pain. And that's that previous cesarean. One of the things I found out from my, from my studies was that usually in the community we have about, or the birthing community, about a third of women say yes to experiencing birth trauma. And that's the full spectrum of birth trauma, which includes psychological birth trauma. Mm-hmm. And when I asked that question in my VBAC survey, so all these women had had at least one previous cesarean, that was two thirds of women that said wow. yes to birth trauma. So we already know we, we have a highly traumatized group of women um, mm-hmm. that have had a previous cesarean. So that's why I started with that. I think it's really important. And certainly as a, I was a home birth midwife for many years, I know that you need to work that out um, mm-hmm. and, and talk about it, debrief about it before you can, you know, you've got to kind of work out that past to be able to look forward to the future. Yeah. So that's well, and I, even recognizing it, like yeah, sometimes absolutely. it's actually hard to recognize that you look at your experience as traumatic because I feel like too, so many times we're mentally trained to tell ourselves, oh, well, we had a safe baby, healthy baby. Yeah. So no, it's fine. Like, and they like, su- like suppress their like trauma down and they're like, no, I was fine. It was fine. And yeah. we're led to believe that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So that's why I really bought in quotes and what it can look like for women for women and quotes from um from the data that you know the, the, the stories that women shared with me for people to kind of go well maybe maybe that is what I experienced then maybe those symptoms are what I'm experiencing and I mean I start that chapter off with you know go grab yourself a in, in pure English style go grab yourself a cup of tea and a chocolate bar because this, <laughs> this chapter will be tough because just to recognize that this might not be the easiest one. It might not be where people want to start off with. They might go back to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I started off with that pain. And then I used what I found through my, um, through my PhD and what I did in my qualitative. So I, my PhD, I had a qualitative side and then I, and that moved into a quantitative. So the qualitative is, is all that feelings and experiences and exploration. And then the quant is all the stats and the numbers. And when I did the qualitative, what I did was I had this crazy idea of designing an app and women at the, after their appointments with, with their healthcare provider would come home and then record their experiences on the app. And then they would do that after every um, appointment. And then I interviewed them afterwards as well. And so I had some really rich data, like I had 52 recordings. I'm so grateful to those women. I'll be forever debtor to those women. And then I had all these, all these, all these interviews as well. So I had these really rich stories. We use that term in them in, in qualitative data. There's like this rich data, mm-hmm. and so these were I, appointments leading up to their birth, yeah, so or, they, or after in the postpartum period after their cesarean. No, this is during their pregnancy, so they're all they're mm, okay. all planning 
to have a VBAC. That, that's what their plan was. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they would go and see their healthcare providers and then they would do recordings for me mm. about, you know, they were given some prompting questions, but it became very organic. Like it was more like a journal. Like they'd start start going, hi, Hazel, I'm so many weeks now and this is what just happened. And it was a really novel way. Of, of, it hadn't been done. Uh, the research hadn't been done like that before. So it was really interesting. What I what I was able to do was a narrative analysis, which was comparing all their stories against each other to look for commonalities and for differences. And what I found is that there were these four factors that impacted how they felt after the birth. Because I remember I interviewed them all after the birth as well. And those four factors, if they were really positive on those four factors across them, and they had a cumulative effect, so one with an impact on the other, they felt better about their birth experience regardless of the birth experience. If they felt lower on those four factors, they were more devastated after their birth experience. Now, it didn't mean that those who had a vaginal birth um, didn't feel more positive than those that had a repeat cesarean because there, there kind of was that as well. But there was a lot of resolution that could that could come when you had a repeat cesarean and felt higher in those factors. And so those factors are then what I go into in the book. And, and it, there's a chapter dedicated to, to each one of those factors. And they are having control. So having control over your choices, your wishes, your, your, um, your birth outcomes. Then there's having confidence. So having confidence in your ability to have a vaginal birth after cesarean, but also the having confidence in your healthcare provider's belief mm-hmm. in you. Mm-hmm. That was quite surprising for me how pertinent that was. They women really wanted to, I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? You really want that person to believe in you and believe that you can do what it is that you want to do. Mm-hmm. And then there's um, having a relationship. So that was the relationship that you have with your healthcare provider, um, whether that's one that's, you know, is, is a developed such as like in a continuity of care or whether it's just with a different person each time. And even then, not not all continuity is the same, and that really came out in the study. And then the last one is being active in labour. So that seemed a bit of a strange one to add on, but it was women who really felt they were able to to do everything that they wanted to do during during labour and birth, be as active as they could, as upright as they could. They felt better after their birth experience. And if if that then ended with a repeat cesarean, then they still felt very positive because they had done everything that they could compared to not having the opportunity to be upright uh, and mobilized. Yes. Yes. And that, you know, we have found that, well, I have found that personally in my group of um, doulas that we have found that through, even if it doesn't end the way they want or anything like, you know, like there's bumps and curves and and it's labor and, and uh, birth, but um along the way, if they felt like they were like in charge and being able to like be in the positions they want and call the shots a little bit more, like overall after they felt immensely more positive and happy about their experience. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's, that's it. And I was really, you know, in the, in the book, then I kind of really go into what do they all mean? So the control, the control chapter might take some people by surprise because I actually, I know a lot of women, when they're, especially when they're reflecting on their previous cesarean, which may have been, let's just take probably the most common example these days with, with induction is they're having their first baby, they get close to dates or post dates, they mm-hmm. get encouraged to have an induction, mm-hmm. the induction doesn't quite go to plan, and they have a cascade of intervention and have a cesarean. Then the, 
when they're then planning for the next birth, either before or during the pregnancy, one of the common themes is this getting armed with knowledge. It's like, okay, now I need to know everything about labour and birth and pregnancy and I really want to be able to call the shots. And there's a bit of, like, there's a bit of grieving in that time of, well, why didn't, why did I say yes or why didn't I say no? And a bit of self-blame. And I think as women, we are kind of hardwired to blame mm-hmm. ourselves for mm-hmm. everything, especially blaming our bodies because we're never quite right. The media never lets us think that we're right because we're either too big or too small or our boobs are not quite right or whatever. Mm, right. Something, something to make us feel better. And then we blame ourselves for not being able to stand up against the patriarchal medical system. So I actually start the control fact chapter looking at the impact of of the patriarchy in medicine and, and in, especially in obstetrics and how the different waves of feminism has impacted that and also the impact of reproductive justice, which is a something that is obviously very important in the US, but also over here with our First Nations women and, uh, and, and migrant communities that have come to Australia. So I look at all that and really kind of frame it to go, you know, it's actually not your fault. It's actually really hard to stand up for yourself and say no when you're at the bottom of a very oppressive ladder mm-hmm. um, and not to kind of then say, well, you can't do anything because then I explore other ways of what you can do to help that. And actually what you, what, how you need those, all those factors together to really build your position, but almost to kind of take that, take that guilt off and also understand where we've got to today with a hospital based maternity system, why it is like it is and the impact of all those different changes in society that have got to where we are today. So, yeah, there's all those different chapters kind of some of them have activities there's little like activities that you can do. There's a few guest writers in there. And then one of my favorite parts, probably because I didn't have to write it, was (laughs) I, uh, I put an email out. I put a Facebook post out and asked for women who had any VBAC stories that they wanted to put in the book. And, and they, I wanted to be back with just something a little bit different or complicated or risk or whatever. And, and I have got 12 stories of women from around the world, including the US, who've had be back with something a little bit different there. So it might be after multiple cesareans, like, like your story you were saying, and, or it might be at home, or it might be with a, a larger body, which, as we know, gets a lot of stigma in, in maternity care. There's one that is after a feedback after a uterine rupture. Mm, um, mm-hmm. there's, there's one after a classical scar. Um, so there's all these different stories in the bo- in, at the back of the book in full with pictures, but I also weave them into some of the chapters earlier as well. And so I love those stories. Some are short, some are in poem form, and some are really long. And I just kept them as they were and uh, popped them in the book. So just really so women can kind of identify and go, well, Maybe I'm not quite sure what Hayes was saying. And then they get to that story and they're like, oh, actually, I really relate to that person. Yeah. I mean, that's that's one of the reasons why we're here on the VBAC Link podcast, right? Is like, like all of these stories, some of them you might not connect to as deeply. And then some you're like, oh my gosh, that's me. I felt that. I had that. That's like my story. Like it's like, Absolutely. it's like, like they're taking it out of my own mouth, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, we've had that, I mean, many times where it's like, whoa, like that was almost creepy how similar those births were. And then to be able to connect and be like, but look, they went on and they did it. And this is what yeah. they did. You know, it's so empowering and, you know, just looking, fl- flipping through these, um, beautiful pictures, like 
absolutely stunning, absolutely stunning pictures. So I'm sure these stories are going to, again, relate to so many people out there that may not even know that they're going to relate to them until they read them. Yeah. And I, I do mention in the, oh my gosh, I'm testing myself which chapter that one's in now. But I, I think it might be confidence um, about really relating to stories and listening to podcasts. I, I mentioned that, but, you know, really need to tap in um, and tap into your peers, you know, because we have, you know, very large social media groups now and, and pages to follow full of positive um, VBAC stories and that that's important in there. Mm-hmm. I do also add, though, that it, it does say that the title is Birth After Caesarean. And I do, throughout the book, look at you know you are choosing the best birth for you you know need to be prepared for both but you may be choosing um you may either have or choose a gentle cesarean so there's a chapter in there as well about what a gentle cesarean is Mm -hmm. evidence says and what maybe some of the things that you might think of um if you are you know if you have a repeat cesarean so there is that part of it as well because i i explore how important it is to really if you're going to be in control of everything or Feel, have more control, then you have to be aware of all options that might happen mm-hmm. and then be able to still have the best birth for you regardless of that outcome. Yeah. You know, um, we just posted, um, we reposted, I should say, from Dr. Natalie Elphinstone, I think is how you say it. Hopefully I'm not butchering her last name, but she's from Australia, actually. She's an OB and she posted this video of a gentle cesarean and where like the mom was actively involved in like giving birth to her baby with her own hands, right? Like yeah. for mm-hmm. me, like my cesareans, both of them, I was like, my arms were strapped down yeah. like in a T. And after my second daughter was born, they undid the one arm and they did, I did have skin to skin. I was able to hold her with that arm, but watching this video was like, uh, it was captivating. I, I mean, I probably, it's a 30 second thing, but I watched it probably 40 times yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Like, because I'm like, Oh my gosh. And like, I just looked at the mom. I looked at the baby, like everyone around her, like the curtain, there was no curtain. She was able to be totally a part of her birth. I'm like, yes, like this is what we need. And I mean, I literally text a midwife here in Utah. I'm like, I know I'm a really small fish in a big ocean, but like, let me know if there's anything I can do from my end to bring this, start bringing this option to people. Because like, we had so many messages after like, whoa, how can I get that? What do I need to do? And, and it looks like in Australia, um, there are multiple videos. Well, it's not, I, I will add it's not common um, and it really does depend on who your OB Provider. is. Exactly. Um, but a few years ago, one of my dear friends, um, she did her PhD as a video ethnography of skin to skin in theatre. So she was she was videoing the um, cesareans and seeing really what happens to what enables skin to skin in theatre and what doesn't. It was really fascinating. She was one of my PhD buddies. And one of the one of the cesareans she saw was a gentle cesarean with that with the with the woman reaching down, grabbing her baby, and then she wrote this beautiful article. But it was actually in a in a it was like a midwifery college magazine that doesn't exist anymore. So I could see that she'd written it, but I'd never actually have I couldn't find my copy of it. So I emailed because we're friends. I emailed her and I said, "Look, do you have a PDF copy? Because I really want to read it." So she sent it to me, and I read it, and then I wrote I wrote about it in that chapter. And then I sent the chapter to her and I said, can you just read 
we needed to make sure that, like <laughs> I've said all the right things because this is you know that's obviously her expert area and she was um, happy with with what I'd written so that was good and yeah like it really is down to provides but really the more women that ask for it the more pressure there'll be to kind of explore it and there is a lot mm-hmm. of resources and videos out there now that can kind of show people how to do it and how to um, how to do it and that it is possible yeah like because I think sometimes it's like no that's impossible it's a sterile environment we can't have extra bodies in the in the operating room you know but look like it it totally well I mean the woman's already there so it, right, that, right that's not going to be an extra body and really if they you know the ones that I've seen you know, really, they they will do the surgical scrub with their hands. They'll have double gloves on. Yeah. So when it gets to the point of needing to reach down, they can take that first pair of gloves off, and then you've got the sterile ones underneath. And yes. you know, there's lots that can be done. Even just lowering the screen, like there's there's often still a screen there, but yes. it's lowered, um, so they can mm-hmm. reach down and then take the baby, and then it can go. You know, it can go back up while they do the suturing. Absolutely, um, yeah. So that, yeah, there's there's ways it can be done, but it's just having people that one understand why. Like I remember being in a in a in an OB's um, office once with with a client, so a woman that I was caring for, and she she was exploring her options after having a cesarean, and she mentioned having a gentle cesarean, and his attitude was, well, if I offer that, then nobody will want to plan a VBAC, and mm-hmm. I was like. You know, that's that's actually not going to happen. Don't worry. <laughs> like, honestly, that isn't going to happen. It's just giving an option to women. Women still really want to have a vaginal birth after cesarean. That's not going to go down. Um, mm-hmm. Your rates are really yeah. not that high anyway, so don't stress. <laughs> you, there's a lot you could do to support them. But, yeah, that was that was an excuse of not mm-hmm. wanting to go there because it sounds a little bit too hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. And that just goes back to sharing our stories too because I feel like, without sharing those experiences, like we were saying, you know, you're not going to know what your options are if you're not being informed about them. So if others are doing this and more people are asking for it, then it's going to open that door and allow other people to be able to be in control of what they want for their birth. And throughout the book, it is really based on evidence. I am a researcher um, with a very large um, library of articles and I, you know, I did dive into them. So straight after the trauma chapter, I go into what is the evidence for the different different choices. Mm-hmm. I have a really deep dive into uterine rupture. And then what was meant to be part of a chapter actually ended up on its own, which was, can I have a VBAC if? And then I look into some different uh, scenarios or issues that, you know, potentially what people will say, well, can I have a VBAC if I've got this? Mm. So that is all evidence-based um, with the numbers and, and going through, you know, what data is, what current data is out there. Right. There's a lot of percentage, you know, percentages in your book, in your book, because I love it. I And I love that. And there's graphs. I mean, I know this is like totally, you, you may not think that this may impact care or anything, but she has this, it's figure two in the book. But it's talking about length of time from pregnancy appointments under different models of care. And you may not right now think like the length of an appointment matters, but I can tell you right now firsthand from experience that when I had with my, with my VBAC kiddo, I switched care like at 24 weeks and I had an OB and he was great. I mean, seriously love the guy. He's wonderful. And I still think he's wonderful. But then I switched care to a midwifery model-based care. And the difference between my visits, and again, like OBs will spend time, but like for me, 
the difference between my visits was incredible. And I actually looked forward, like really looked forward to my visits with my midwife because I was always greeted with a ginormous hug. Always. Like she never didn't walk in without like giving me a big hug and saying, how are you doing? Like, really, how are you? And then would sit down and really, we would just have a discussion. Like she became my best friend, right? Like I could just open up to her and it just, she spent time, quality time. And it, for me, it, it really helped me as I was entering into this next stage of birth to feel confident in her because I was so comfortable because of all the time that she spent with me. Yeah. And I, I love that. I do love that graph. And that came out of my VBAC in Australia survey. And um, we asked what model of care they had. And then we, and then I asked, you know, what was the time frame? Like, what was the time spent at your appointments? And when we looked at the, at the data, like it was just so obvious that that shorter time frame, so maybe five to 15 minutes was certainly with, with obstetric-led care. And then the, you know, the, the 20 minutes plus, um, and certainly with the private practicing midwives, it was more than an hour usually was with the midwifery models of care. And the reason why that's important is because relationships take time. And, mm-hmm. and that, you know, in that relationship factor, you need to have someone by your side who understands your wishes, your trauma, if you have some, which, you know, as I said, two thirds of women did, and understand what you want and what you're planning for and what you're hoping for and just understand you and how you mm-hmm. tick. Because certainly in my years as a continuity of care midwife, in all models of care, you really, for me as a midwife, I really want to know the person that I'm caring for so that I can see those changes, those really subtle mm-hmm. changes in behavior even during labor. And also to see when you can you can pick up when things aren't quite right mm-hmm. um, and that you might need an extra hug at that time or an extra kind word. And yeah. that takes a lot of trust. And relationships in healthcare, I believe, should be based on trust and equity. And that takes time. So the very simple graph, like, I mean, there's no way I could have done an appointment in 10 minutes because I have to have a cup of tea at least. And there's no way I can drink one cup of tea in just five or 10 minutes. So sit down and, uh, you know, have a cup of tea and learn about what's going on. The physical part, the feeling the baby, the blood pressure, that's, that's you know, that you do at some point. But actually finding out what's going on for the woman and, and how she's feeling and, you know, what's going on with the family, that was far more important. And that that takes time. So mm-hmm. when we saw that in the graph format, it's like, oh, perfect. That's exactly that exactly shows what we're, what we're saying is that this relationship takes time. And, yeah. you know, most of us, um, certainly in, in our in, in our Western world, that we we don't usually marry someone that we haven't really or go get into a relationship with someone that we haven't spent a fair bit of time with and figured out whether we like them or not. So we understand that those relationships um, are important. And I think mm-hmm. when you're only doing something a few times in your life, but you will remember it for the rest of your life, yeah. then you really want to choose the team and the support people there. And that includes your healthcare provider who completely know you and completely understand where you've come from and where you want to go to. Oh my gosh. I love it. So, I mean, I feel like I, I could talk to you until 4am <laughs> in Australia. Like we could talk forever. I'm wide awake now. <laughs> uh, I know. We're, my family and I are getting ready. We're going on a trip, a family vacation this weekend. And like, 
that your book um, is going to be in hand the entire airplane ride there and back because I just, I want to like soak in every single word that you wrote in this book. And I'm so excited and I definitely encourage everyone. I mean, I haven't even read it yet, but I mean, like I've skimmed, I should say I started, but I haven't had time to just sit down and read. And I mean, it's going to be amazing. I can already tell just, just browsing through this and listening to you. Oh my gosh. There is something that you say in here and it's in the very beginning. This is until this is where I have stopped reading, but it was something that like, it's just, it impacts me personally because I feel like emotional. It's kind of funny. Uh, I felt like this. I felt like a failure. And I feel like um, there's so many times in life um, that like we can, like you said, like we beat ourselves up. Like if it's not about our body, it's about something else, but like failure is a word that comes in. And I actually have recently um, today actually is going to be launching, but I recently made a reel about failure and how there is so no such thing as failure, but this is something, if you don't mind, I'm going to quote you reading this book. It's page 10. Everybody, if you have the book in this book, I will talk about planning an elective cesarean, planning a VBAC, having an elective cesarean, having a VBAC or having a repeat emergency cesarean. There is no failure. You haven't failed. If you choose one birth mode, but have another, you are amazing and your choices are valid be true to you. And that to me is so powerful. Be true to you. And no, you did not fail no matter what birth mode you chose or what birth mode ended up happening. Right? Like, don't you feel like Sarah, like, I don't know. I just, I don't know. Yeah, I completely agree on that. And I think, you know, that touches back into the trauma too, that maybe you're not aware of that you've experienced and really you know, fear clearing and taking the time to process your previous birth, knowing that whatever the outcome is for your next journey, it you're not that failure. You're fine and perfect. You're enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you absolutely. are enough. Yes. And you the research, enough. like the research, when you read it, it's it's really full of emotive, damaging words when it comes to to VBAC. You know, saying that women are uh, a trial of scar or a trial of labor we're not criminals for wanting to have a vaginal birth mm-hmm. and when you use that language in research then it means clinicians OBs and midwives and nurses will use that language as well mm-hmm. and tell you that you're on trial and what do you imagine when you think of that you're not thinking about you know is this uterine scar going to survive you're going to feel that you're a criminal and you are not mm-hmm. just because you want to have a vaginal birth so I I even challenge researchers, take that language out. You don't need it. It's mm-hmm. unnecessary. I've been writing a paper with, with some OBs over here recently and just saying, I won't be on it if you use the word trial. I won't be on it if you use the term failed Fair. or succeeded. Mm-hmm. We will just take the emotive words out and just call it what it is. Yeah. Because it's, yeah, we, we, have to, we have to show by example as well and not have that language in the papers that are influencing policy um, and guidelines and practitioners. Yeah. And there's such power in language and the words that we use. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, well, Hazel, it has been such an honor to chat with you. Like I said, I feel like we could go on and on and on and maybe we just need to have you back on, or maybe we need to do something even bigger and do like a webinar with you because you have such a wealth of knowledge and we're so grateful for you. And like I said, everybody, like we will have the link for her book, Birth After Cesarean, Your Journey to a Better Birth 
in our show notes. So um, Hazel, before we go, do you want to share where everyone can find you? I'm going to be sharing you all over our social media um, as well. And we're going to have everything in the show notes, but tell people where we can find you. Yeah, sure. So I'm on Instagram at Hazel Kedel and I'm on um, Facebook and at, uh, at VBAC Matters or Hazel Kedel VBAC Researcher. And so that's where I share my, you know, obviously all the book information, um, but also, um, you know, future research that I'm doing as well. And I'd be love to come on and do a webinar with you and, and talk further about this at any time, even at two in the morning. Even at two in the morning. You are you are amazing. <laughs> we are so grateful for you. Seriously. Thank you so much, Hazel. And um, yeah, I can't wait to share this episode with the world. Thank you for having me. You know, a lot of what we talked about in the episode is so important and so, you know, true to how I feel too. I think, you know, calling out trauma has been something that's really near and dear to my heart and something that I had to do in preparing for my own VBAC. So I definitely recommend anybody that is going through this journey to make sure you're taking the time to really heal from that previous birth and taking time to process and doing some fear clearing and even, you know, physical healing from the scar and doing scar massage and such like that. And also just, you know, I really think it's important finding that support and building that relationship. Like Hazel was talking about, you know, making sure that you have somebody that you are able to build a relationship and feel comfortable with, because that's going to matter so much when it comes to your birth and also finding a doula that Mm -hmm. you have a good relationship with, not just your provider. So, you know, I think those are really main things that I really try to instill in anyone that's, you know, going for a VBAC. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I 100% agree. And Sarah, we're so happy to have you in our VBAC Link Doula community. Can you tell everybody where they can find you as well? Yeah, sure. So I am in Simpsonville, South Carolina. It's the upstate of South Carolina, more commonly, I guess you'd be familiar with Greenville, South Carolina. Mm -hmm. And so I am in that area and you can find me mostly I hang out on Instagram. So either Sarah Marie Bilger or entering motherhood, you can find me there on Instagram and, you know, we're actually planning on starting up local VBAC support groups. Oh, so <laughs> if anybody is around and in the area and interested in doing that, there's going to be me and another doula in the area. And um, we're excited to start that and really provide in-person support for yes. you know, people either that have had cesareans, maybe thinking of a VBAC or really just, you know, any, any realm of cesarean VBAC. If you've already had your VBAC and you want to come share a story of success to, you know, motivate and help women that are preparing for it as well. We're going to include story sharing and, and different topics to cover. So absolutely amazing. Awesome. Awesome. And when you are all like, when all that information is available, if you wouldn't mind shooting that over to us and we will make sure that the world knows that everyone in Carolina knows. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for co-hosting with me today. It was such an honor to have you. Thanks for having me. 
Would you like to be a guest on the podcast? Tell us about your experience at the vbacklink.com slash share. For more information on all things VBAC, including online and in-person VBAC classes, the VBAC blog, and Julian Megan's bios, head over to thevbacklink.com. Congratulations on starting your journey of learning and discovery with the VBAC link.